Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. I'm Rob Anderson, your host for this week's Arkansas AgCast. This week's AgCast features two stories from our own Greg Patterson. First up, we're talking about large animal veterinarians. With spacious facilities and state-of-the-art technology, large animal vet clinics can efficiently and effectively provide these services Arkansas cattle ranchers need to raise healthy livestock. But there's a shortage of these vets in areas around the state, and only a limited number offering on-farm visits. So ranchers are thinking differently about animal care and taking their animals on the road to visit these specialized facilities. Greg Patterson sat down with Dr. Cy Shirtliff of Moralton to talk about his large animal facility, and he talked to Tom Jones, Arkansas Farm Bureau board member and a cattle producer from Pottsville, about the importance of having access to a vet like Dr. Shirtliff. This is Greg Patterson with Arkansas AgCast, and I'm sitting here with uh, Dr. Cy Shirtliff and a produ- cattle producer Tom Jones, and we're at Dr. Cy's uh, large animal veterinary facility here. And, Kind of give me some background of uh, how you came about developing and building this structure. Well, you know, 20 years ago, I was probably working more out of my truck than I was in our previous facilities. But as we got busier, we kind of changed from a ambulatory practice to a haul-in practice. We were busy. We could see more clients in a day's time. We had a better facility than most of my producers had with the hydraulic chute and all. But over time, we outgrew it. You know, we, we didn't have the pen space we needed. Uh, we, we were shuffling cattle around through the day. We were under roof, but not out of the weather. So when it was 20 degrees outside and the wind was blowing 20, that's what we had. So this building came about because we needed more pen space. We want to get out of the weather, especially in the winter. We can close all the doors and turn the heat on and, and keep working. Uh, the other thing we were just we were able to make a, you know, a facility that was a little bit better for safety for people, safety for the animals. Uh, was able to add an, uh, another hydraulic chute besides the other one that's a lay down, so we can do feet work a little bit easier. So it just it let us become a little bit more flexible and 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 do some things that we couldn't do before for our producers. Now, um, when I first saw these hydraulic chutes, my description is it's like a touchless car wash. It's almost like the animal can get in there and move through. There's not as much stress. So talk about the thought that you put into developing these chutes. Okay, so it really starts at when the cattle pull in and we unload them because unloading and loading cattle is probably the most dangerous thing we have to do where we have an interface of people and cattle. Uh, so but once they get off the trailer, all the gates to the clinic swing and latch to two different places. So we can stay behind cattle all the way to the chute and never have to be in the pen with them. And that we can always keep a gate between us and cattle if we need to. Uh, they can't turn back and injure us. The other thing that does is keep us, it keeps them in a flow. It keeps us moving away from us till they get to the chute. 
which we have the hydraulic turret gate, which is, you know, it's, it pushes the cattle hydraulically around without somebody physically having to be there. Low stress, the cattle move through better. Once they get in the alleyway, we have hydraulic gates that shut down behind them. Once again, there's somebody running up, putting a pipe behind them, having to beat on them, uh, you know, having to use cattle prods and the like. And then uh, the hydraulic chute, once we get them in there, the thing about it compared to maybe a manual chute or a head gate is once we get them in there, we're able to squeeze them. They don't struggle. So they're, they're safe in there. And of course, well, whatever we're doing on them, we're safe. So, so that's the whole mindset is no stress for the cattle, safety for them and us. And I think the the thing as a producer that that I see uh, specifically with with size laydown tables, uh, there, there was a time in the past, and and I think there it, it's still prevalent today. You get a cow with, with a bad foot, and and you know you just well, what do I do with her? And uh, that there has been a time in the past where you might try to do something with that cow, but probably that cow was not one you even thought about keeping. Uh, we brought in some cows this morning, and, and after Craig checking them, it was obvious that, that they need to stay on the farm, but they had some foot issues. He just laid those cows down. We did what we needed to do to the feet. I can take those cows back to the farm now and, and not worry about them. And at the price of cattle, at the price of calves, at the price of inputs, I don't think any of us realize the cost of worry. And, and so not having that stress on a producer is a pretty big deal. Talk about uh, what a laydown table is so our listeners out there who may not be familiar with with cattle and what's going on, tell them exactly what just happened out there. It was pretty amazing to watch. Okay, there's different kind of laydown tables. Ours is basically a squeeze chute that has hydraulics on one side that allows it to totally lay on its side. So you're talking up. about a several hundred pound animal that yeah. all of a sudden is turned on its yeah. side. So majority of what we work on feet uh, with lots of problems, bulls, because they're so heavy, their feet problems tend not to go away as easy. And uh, their foot injuries, because of that extra weight, tend to be more longer lasting. So we do a lot of bulls and we get them in there that weigh a ton to 2,500 pounds all the time. We just tip them. Once we tip the animal, sometimes they struggle for just a minute, but they actually lay there. Y'all noticed the cows we did pretty much laid there calm. They weren't stressed at all. The floor folds down, allows us access to the feet. We have a hydraulic rope puller that secures the feet, pulls them back where they can't take the feet away from you. And of course we did trims in just a few minutes, set the cows back up, let them out of the chute and they walked off. So basically we had a a pregnancy test today and then a pedicure. Yes. For the animals, (laughs) so it worked out real well. You're bringing more and more producers to you. They can bring their cattle to you, and that makes it easier for you to get more work done. But you're still going and visiting farms occasionally. Yes, we still do hard work. You know, big herds need pregs on the farm where there's too many animals to haul. And, of course, you have emergencies where they can't haul the animal. We, we, we get to those. But by and large, I can get to four to five as many people in a day's time if they're bringing them to me. And I've never really have thought about that, but I was talking with a veterinarian the other day, and he said, y'all just took the small animal model, which is appointments every 10 to 20 minutes, and applied it to large animal, which is exactly what we did. And we just, we just keep them coming all day. Like I said, I can get to a lot more people uh, 
some animals don't need to go home. You know, some animals need to be under our supervision and care. We can keep them in the hospital in the shade and where it's cool, put a fan on them if needed, or in the wintertime, they're actually warm. We can get them out of the weather. And it, so it's made our, you know, our, our, some of our cases, we've actually gotten along better with them just having them here. And I think it's, it's critical that, that Cy realized the need for, uh, you know, yeah, we have, a, we have a lot of large producers in the state, but we have a world of small producers. Um, and, and most of these producers have other things going on. And they probably have facilities good enough to catch their cattle. But, you know, standing out there in this kind of weather under the sun working cattle at a head gate, uh, if they bring those cattle down to Cy, He's got enough pens now. He can he can keep someone's animals. They can go do whatever they need to do. Come back, uh, and and I, I I really believe that we need to utilize the facility here that that we have. Um, one because uh, you know certainly Cy needs to cash flow this thing, and we need to support him. But but the bigger thing is if we're going to stay in the cattle business we're going to need to understand how valuable our time is. We probably can be mowing hay or fixing a baler or getting ready to do something else. And he, they'll call back and say, your cattle are ready. Uh, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Or you can run into town, yeah. do some errands or whatever you need to do. And then you can come back and yeah. pick up your animals. Uh, Tom, tell me what was your initial reaction when you first walked into this place? And brought your cattle here and saw what. Uh, my done. very first reaction was, I don't have good enough cattle to be in this facility. Uh, th- this that was so impressive the first time we unloaded animals in here, and I thought to myself, I need to have better cattle because this this is a heck of a place, and uh, and the speed, uh, Greg. I think that's the other thing. Uh, we bring a truckload of cattle in 12, 13 cows. If he's just preggin those cows. Man, they're back in the trailer and we're gone. Um, that that's a that's a value, and so uh, this, this is just. Um, I know there are other good vet clinics around the state, and I'm not I'm not trying to compare or say anything like this. But but people in this area, they ought to be extremely proud of the facility we've got available to us here, and and uh, it's it's a good deal. Now. Um, Dr. Sai, we, we spoke earlier. Tell our, our listeners um, how many surrounding counties you service, what kind of the radius is of people that are bringing animals in here now? Well, we're, we're in Moralton and Conway County, and we service all the counties around us. So we're, our main core is about seven counties. But we're seeing cattle coming in from other parts of the state because we've got the ability to maybe do some feet work, uh, you know, maybe able to handle big cattle, large bulls. Uh, we're starting to see. I've got cattle coming in from Harrison to Hot Springs. I mean, we're we're, we're pulling in lots of cattle. Uh, veterinarians are sending us cattle because I'm able to handle them. I'm able to maybe tilt them over and do feet work or hospitalize them where they just don't have the facilities to do that. So. Talk in terms, and, and Tom, chime in here too, because Farm Bureau has has been real proactive in trying to get more large animal vets out there. And and Dr. Side, talk about the differences from when you went through vet school to what it what it's like now <laughs> in that need for more 
of the uh, large animal or food animal vets. So back in the 80s when I went to vet school, uh, most of my classmates were from a rural background. You know, most of these guys were, and gals were off the farm, had farm and ranching background, and were, you know, were interest, had been around cattle their whole life and were interested in it. Today, just the demographics have changed. Uh, you know, most of the applicants for vet school now, uh, you know, we've got today in vet schools 80% female, which that's a total turnaround from where it was in the 60s through 80s. It was probably dominated by men. Well, it's a women's field now. And uh, we don't see as many women coming off farm and ranch backgrounds that are going into vet schools. And, and, and the same goes for the, the men coming into vet school. They're from the suburbs. They're from the big city. And, and what we're finding is if you didn't grow up handling cattle around livestock, around horses, you, just, there's just, you don't have that interest in it. So I, I think we're getting a, you know, and there's still people, there, don't get me wrong, there's still kids coming out of school today that are wanting to do food, animal, mixed animal practice. It, it's just it's, the numbers aren't there. Uh, the small town America the economics do not like probably when you were growing up every small town had a hometown veterinarian you know and, and those towns could support that veterinarian it's not true today and, and that's that's what we found out why there's the area that veterinarians are getting in is getting smaller and smaller it's just economically there we're, we're having to you know back up and and I, and I think the, the the facility that we're setting in today uh, is probably simply going to be necessary for us to keep large animal vets. Uh, we, we, this facility uh, can teach somebody how to handle big animals safely. Well, that's a heck of a teaching tool. Uh, and, and I will chime in on the fact that as we see the cattle industry evolving, uh, the, the, the feed uh, additive directives that, the, that we have, and you have to have a relationship with your vet, and there's, there's much more that a, a farmer, uh, a cattle producer is going to have to do with their vet than they've ever done. Um, well, if you're going to have that kind of relationship, you also need that, that understanding that that vet is there to do you the things that need to be done, you need to utilize that vet. You need to support that vet. And, and, and by doing that, we'll keep large animal vets. I mean, the, the one thing I can, can be completely sure of, if we don't support them, they won't be here. And when we don't have them, we're going to look up one day and go, oh my gosh, we don't want to get to that point. You also mentioned in a conversation we had earlier, Tom, about the fact that um, maybe it's facilities like this and the ability to be able to bring your cattle in that will be a decision maker for younger ranchers coming up through the the pipeline, so to speak, that they'll say, you know, hey, um, I want to do this. I think that's true. I mean, as young people, uh, those that do enter the, the cattle industry as young people, they've only got two choices. They either grow into it with a family uh, or, or they start a small herd and they, they you know, do what they have to do off the farm and all that. Um, those are the kind of producers, I think, that are going to look at size operation here or their vet's operation, wherever they might be, and say, you know what? When I'm not at my other job or my other 
thing, I need to be bailing hay. I don't need to be having a vet out here to preg check cattle and all this. I need to put them in a trailer, take them to the, to the vet, go back, do what I need to do. And as, as families get more stressful with things going on, and, and I think you'll just start to see producers saying, you know, taking them to the facility, that's just a cost of doing business. I think as that goes forward, you'll have people say, you know what, I can afford to do that. I can afford to do that because it gives me an opportunity to do something else. Well, this is Greg Patterson uh, on Arkansas AgCast. We've been talking with Tom Jones, who's a cattle producer outside of Pottsville, and also Dr. Cy Shirtliff. We've spent the morning at his large animal clinic at Morrillton Veterinary Clinic, and thank you so much for taking the time and speaking to us. You're welcome. We enjoyed it this morning. You bet. Next up, Greg interviews Dr. Amanda McWirt, Extension Horticulture Specialist. The number of craft breweries in Arkansas is on the rise. So we talked to McWirt about research the Division of Agriculture is conducting in the production of hops as an alternative crop that would benefit the breweries in the state. This is Greg Patterson, and on this edition of Arkansas AgCast, we're talking with Dr. Amanda McWirt. She's with the uh, Extension Service, and y'all are working on a really cool new project that you started a year ago dealing with hops. Explain what hops is and how it's used. Yeah, so hops is uh, used in brewing to add either aroma or bittering. Um, It was previously used as a preservative. Um, Used very widely in certain types of beers, so your IPAs are pretty hoppy um, and add that kind of bittering quality. Um, You know, the basis for this project is the expansion of local craft breweries in the state of Arkansas. Uh, If you've kind of watched that market over the last five to ten years, there's been a huge expansion in the number of breweries that we have in the state. Uh, And so we were interested in seeing if we could grow hops here in Arkansas to supply that industry. Uh, So we would be creating a new uh, crop that would help some of our specialty crop growers potentially diversify. Um, It could be a, a crop that could be very high value. And then we would be feeding um, this local product into our local breweries um, and possibly be helping those breweries produce a product that could be very well marketed as kind of an Arkansas-grown beer. Um, And so we started this project. I have uh, two close colleagues that are working on the project with me, uh, Dr. Jackie Lee, who is the new director of the Fruit Research Station, and Dr. Renee Threlfall, who's a food scientist uh, up in Fayetteville at the University of Arkansas. And uh, we got some funding actually from the, the Department of Agriculture Specialty Crop Block Grant to get this project going. Uh, and so we planted our first hops plants here at the Fruit Research Station in Clarksville in September of 2018. So we're a little under a year away from our first planting date, um, but we're pretty excited because we're already starting to get some harvest off of some of the varieties that we have planted. Uh, and so this is very, still very, very preliminary. You know, this is still kind of an establishment year, um, but we're kind of excited in seeing some of the potential for, you know, producing this new crop here in the state of Arkansas. Talk a little bit about uh, hops itself. You're, you're mentioning, well, we're, we're going to get a little bit this year. I know with fruit trees, sometimes it takes anywhere from three to six or seven mm-hmm. years before you actually get fruit. What's it like with hops? So with hops, what I have seen is that most people assume that you're going to get your first full harvest in year four. So uh, your first year, you may only get a 20% crop. Uh, year three, you may get a 40% crop. Uh, between year three and four, it may jump up and you get 60%. And then finally, after that, you're getting 100% of what you could potentially yield. So, um, you know, here in our preliminary um, 
a year, we're probably only getting you know somewhere around 100 pounds to maybe 200 pounds uh, of hops uh, per acre potentially. But um, you know, looking at other states and what they're producing, you know, and peak production, they may be getting closer to a thousand pounds of hops uh, once they're under full production. You mentioned the uh, explosion of the craft breweries in Arkansas as well as nationwide. Where are they having to go right now to get the hops necessary for their beers? Yeah, so most of the hops that are produced in the United States are, are produced in our more northern states. So Washington State um, is producing well over 85% of the hops that are grown in the United States. Uh, I think we have somewhere around 57,000 acres of hops total in, in, in the U.S., and of, of that, about 80% are grown in Washington. Um, there's a few in Oregon, some in California, and then also some up in Michigan as well. So it's primarily concentrated up along the 45th um, parallel, so a lot further north. Um, and part of the reason why hops are, are produced in those more northern regions is because they respond very heavily to day length. And so in the summer, as we switch from the longest day of the year and then start going back towards uh, shorter days heading into fall, that's that time period when hops start to initiate and start flowering. Uh, and so to get maximum production on hops, you really need very long day lengths leading up to that point, uh, somewhere over 15 hours uh, of day length. Uh, here in Arkansas, you know, the longest days that we ever usually get, depending on where you're at in the state, is somewhere around 14 and a half hours. So we're just slightly sh short of that, just a little sly. Um, so we're just a little further south than what the ideal range. Uh, and so we're probably going to have, you know, slightly lower yield potential overall. Um, but I do think it's still possible to grow hops here and potentially be able to provide, you know, a very high quality local product. Tell us um, a little bit more about um, the advantages you see of growing here in Arkansas. I mean, you wouldn't have started this project if you didn't think that there was potential. What are some of those those advantages? Yeah, I think it all goes back to, you know, that expansion of the craft brewing industry and, you know, those kinds of um, breweries are really looking to be able to provide a unique product. And so if they're able to advertise their beer as containing Arkansas-grown hops, I think that's a real advantage for them. Um, and one other thing to think about, you know, um, a lot of hops that are used are sometimes dried, so it makes it easier to be transported across the country. But certain types of beers require that the hops be fresh, or what is called a, a wet hopping process. Um, and so if Arkansas growers were able to produce some of those hops and get those more quickly to the local breweries, that would facilitate those breweries' ability to create those types of beers that with the wet and fresh hops. Now explain to the listeners um, our things like, is hops necessary for every beer that's made? Or are there different ways that you can use it within the context of beer making? Yeah, so hops are not required for every style of beer. There are certain styles that um, require more heavily for the recipe to include hops. So like your IPAs are going to be hoppier type beers. Um, you know, and now there's even more increasing interest to do all kinds of other things with hops. You know, I've seen some um, non-alcoholic beers that kind of have the hop aroma in them. Um, one of our graduate students recently bought a hop candy. Uh, that's kind of interesting. So there's kinds of all different unique uh, um, potential markets out there that, that hops are now going into, uh, kind of with this craze of people being really excited about hoppier beers and, and that flavor. So how long will this research project go on? So this is our preliminary year. Uh, we'll be finishing up this fall in 2019, but we were uh, excited that I believe we're going to be getting some more funding for two more years. 
Uh, and so that would carry this project well into 2021. Uh, and that would be kind of our initial phase of evaluations of, you know, what is working and what is not working. Um, and then we're hoping to take kind of that preliminary information from these first two to three years and hopefully can carry the project on um, as we seek out further funding in the future. What about, and, and I'm curious because um, Extension has always been real interested in high tunnels. Mm -hmm. is, is there potential with hops for that? Because you were talking about... Mm -hmm you know, light and day length and, you mm -hmm. know, you can manipulate those things artificially. Yeah, no, that's a very interesting question. Um, you know, one of the biggest challenges I think that we will find growing hops here in Arkansas is fungal disease pressure. And so if we were able to put hops under a high tunnel and kind of reduce some of that humidity uh, and leaf wetness, that might help control some of the diseases. The issue with hops is that in an ideal system, the hops trellis is going to be 18 feet tall. And so that's a very tall trellis to be able to fit underneath a high tunnel. Um, we are looking at some new trellising options out there. Um, there's some a lower kind of um, low trellising uh, options out there that make it a little bit easier to manage the canopy where you're not having to be up on a ladder or stilts um, to, to get up to the top of the, the, the cropping system. And potentially if we see uh, success in that, it could potentially go under a high tunnel. Um, but we're still in a very preliminary phase and we're just trying to kind of evaluate the standard production systems and how they're, they're performing here in Arkansas. Today is the first workshop, HOPS mm -hmm. workshop. Kind of tell the listener what folks who are attending this can expect today. Yeah, we're very excited about this first workshop. I think we have a good mix of farmers, brewers, people from the brewing industry attending. So I'm, I'm hopeful that this is kind of a good kickoff to this idea of, of hops being a potential crop for the state of Arkansas and that we're able to, you know, form some good networks with, with the people across the state who are interested uh, in this type of crop. Um, our, our program today, we're going to talk about the basics of production, so variety selection, fertility management, how we trellis uh, hops. We're going to talk about pest and disease management, so kind of what diseases and insects have we been seeing pop up over the last year. Uh, and then we're also going to talk about the quality of the hops that we have been producing. So uh, Renee Threlfall, our food scientist, has been running some analysis to kind of see, you know, what are the aromatic and bittering qualities of these hops that we're producing, and, and is it some type of uh, a hop that a local brewer would want to brew with. Uh, and then we're very excited that we're going to have um, uh, Jesse Core from Core Brewing is sending his head brewer uh, to kind of talk about the potential for using local hops in, in Arkansas breweries. And then we have three growers um, from Arkansas who are going to talk about their experiences with growing hops. And, you know, we have everything from a, kind of a smaller scale growers to a grower that has about two acres of hops trellising installed. So kind of hearing from a grower's perspective, what kind of things have they been seeing that, that are successful? Uh, and then we're going to wrap it up, have a barbecue dinner, and then finally, once hopefully it cools off here uh, later this evening, and we'll head out to the hop yard to go look at our hops and uh, kind of see, see what's out there and what a hop plant looks like. Well, Dr. Amanda McWirt is uh, leading her team in hops research here. It's a new research done by the Extension Service. And thank you so much for being on this issue of Arkansas AgCast. Thanks, Greg. That's it for this week's AgCast. We'll be back next Thursday with more stories about Arkansas's top industry, agriculture.